so there's this one case that a lot of law students get assigned in their first year property class that it's safe to say is pretty unforgettable. I'm Tom DeKezzi, by the way, a second year student at UVic Law, and one of the hosts of the Starry Indecisis podcast. So to get back to the case, it's called Edwards v. Sims, and it's this case from Kentucky in the 1920s that's about land rights. But what the case really ends up being about is this one judge, Justice Logan. What happens in the case is that there's these two guys, Edwards and Lee, who own land close to each other. Edwards, as it turns out, has the opening to this big underground cave on his land, which he decides to turn into a bit of a tourist spot. So Edwards goes out, scopes out the cave, maps it out, and then starts advertising it as the Great Onyx Cave. It all seems pretty harmless, except for the fact that the underground portion of the cave actually runs underneath Lee's land. Lee catches wind of this, and whether it's out of jealousy, pettiness, or just him sensing an opportunity, he decides to put a stop to it. So Lee sues Edwards, saying that the fact that he's running the tours underneath his land means that he's trespassing on Lee's land. The case ends up going all the way up to the Kentucky Court of Appeal, which eventually sides with Lee. In giving its reasons, the court cites this old property law principle that says whoever owns the surface rights to a piece of land also owns the property rights all the way underground and up into the sky. Just riveting stuff. Justice Logan, however, disagrees with the other judges on the Court of Appeal, but it's the way that he does it that's really special. He starts off by mentioning that what he's about to say isn't supported by any legal precedent which is a bit of a hot take, but still not anything too crazy. He then starts identifying the logical errors in the majority decision, pointing out how ridiculous it would be to give someone property rights right up to what he calls the outmost sentinel of the solar system just because they own a plot of land in rural Kentucky. Even though it makes some sense, it's also immediately clear that Justice Logan has a bit of a linguistic flair. But where he really starts to take it to another level is when he turns his focus to Edwards and Lee specifically. Justice Logan starts off by pointing out the basic fact that Edwards, and not Lee, is the one who discovered, explored, developed, and advertised the cave. He doesn't say it quite that simply, though. Instead, he talks about men fighting their way through the eternal darkness into the mysterious and abysmal depths of the bowels of a groaning world to discover the therefore unseen splendors of unknown natural scenic wonders. It's beyond weird, I know, but it gets even weirder when he turns his attention to Lee specifically. While Logan is more than happy to describe Edwards as a conqueror of fear who descends into bottomless pits and wades through rushing torrents, it soon becomes obvious that his feelings for Lee aren't as positive. Here's what he has to say about Lee, and I quote, Then came the horse leech's daughter crying, Give me, give me. Then came the surface men crying, I think this cave may run under my lands. They do not know, they only guess, but they seek to discover the secrets of Edward so that they may harass him and take from him that which he has made his own. They've come to a court of equity and have asked that Edwards be forced to open his doors and his ways to them so that they may go in and despoil him, that they may lay his secrets bare so that others may follow their example and dig into the wonders which Edwards has made his own. What may be the result if they stop his ways? In case you forgot, 
this all just started with the cave. The reason why Edwards and Sims is so memorable, aside from the obvious, is because it's so different from your typical court decision. Don't get me wrong, some cases can be really interesting, but there's a lot of them that can be pretty dry as well as hard to understand. Older cases in legal texts can be especially guilty of this. A lot of time you'll see the writers going on forever and ever about certain points, using qualifier after qualifier after qualifier until you forget what was even being qualified, pulling words straight out of the dark ages like fortwiths, here and befores, and thereuntos, and the one language crime that English teachers everywhere cringe at, which is using too much passive voice. It's the reason why we've got the word legalese, which pretty much refers to the idea that a lot of times the language used in the law is so complicated that it might as well be its own language. Edwards and Lee is an almost comical example of overly flowery and drawn-out legal writing, but the effects of legalese are around us all the time. A great example is the terms and agreements that you'll often find on web pages and apps. While a lot of them actually use pretty straightforward language, the assumption that they don't, coupled with the fact that they can take anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour to read all the way through, means that most of us just agree without even bothering to skim them over. One 2020 study found that while 33% of users claimed to read terms of service, only 1% could remember what they had read immediately after agreeing. The use of complicated and ambiguous legal language can also have grave consequences. And now would be an important time to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen, Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples. The lands are unceded because they were never subject to a treaty between its original inhabitants and the colonial crown. But the use of the word might give the impression that other lands, treaty lands, were in some sense given up. That couldn't be further from the truth. Aside from the fact that many treaties referred explicitly to the land and resources being shared, there's also the reality that many treaties were signed without the Crown making an attempt to accurately explain the terms or capture Indigenous nations' perspectives and interests. That's how we get agreements that were initially supposed to be about coexistence and relationship becoming about land being given up and ceded. The work of undoing those historical wrongs continues to this day but it's important for present and future generations of legal professionals to understand how using inaccessible legal language, whether intentionally or unintentionally, can have serious, long-lasting effects. More recently, governments, agencies, and courts have started to recognize the importance of using plain and accessible legal language. Governments across the country have even adopted plain language checklists to ensure that documents are easy to read and understand. Some of the recommendations in BC's checklist are things like using descriptive titles and headings, sentences that are no more than 15 to 20 words, paragraphs that are no more than five sentences, using the active voice, present tense, and a conversational tone, and overall aiming to write for a grade eight reading level or lower. The Supreme Court of Canada even started writing plain language summaries of its decisions so that they could be more easily understood by the public. Summaries have been written for all cases since 2021, as well as cases going back to 2018. To talk more about the move towards plain legal language, I spoke with Cheryl Stevens. Cheryl is a graduate of UBC Law and one of the founders of the Plain Language Association in Canada, also known as Plain. I spoke with Cheryl about how she got involved with Plain, the trend she's seen over the years regarding the use of plain language, 
and where she sees the movement going in the years to come. Here's some of our conversation. in your experience what is the plain language movement like did is did it ha- is i don't know if movement is even the right word but um was there a particular starting point like where did this all come from where did people when did people realize that this was something that was needed well i like to tell people that queen victoria sent her the first governor to new zealand with instructions to produce laws that were clear and simple and understandable to the people governed mm-hmm. and in her day, that didn't. The language was different, and one thing she used was the word prolix. She didn't want prolix laws. Okay. Yeah, I've so never heard that word. Goes way back, <laughs> yeah. you know, two hundred yeah. years. And, and actually, you can find quotes from, uh, you know, I- international classical writers and others going back hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. But uh, in a significant way, I, in the U.S., the I think it was the Department of Commerce published a booklet around uh, 1977, calling on industry to use plain language. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Canada had something published in that year too by the government. And then you had uh, many uh, plain language laws for consumers so that uh, contracts for consumers needed to be in plain language. Mm -hmm. And that also impacted Canada. And it was around, I think, 1991 that uh, there was a combined study by um, Canadian Bar Association and Canadian Bankers Association, and they uh, concluded in that report and another report on literacy that plain language was a, a necessity, uh, so for both bank documents and legal documents. And so both of them uh, mentioned that plain language was necessary. And uh, so that's actually when the CBA and the uh, CLE and you know launched their study. Mm-hmm. their project on plain language so you know it's been going i'd say since the 70s and in bc mostly uh money has been available since the 90s because mm-hmm. the funding is very important there have been projects across canada at the provincial level at the municipal level at the federal level and as soon as we have an election and there's yeah. a change in government or the party in government the funding is cut off so things have been going back and forth for 30 years but i'd say we've made definite progress with law mm-hmm. and, and we used to get really argumentative resistance from lawyers in 30 years ago and you, we never hear that now Oh wow! Okay, that's that. Yeah, that's that is something I wanted to touch on um, uh, a little bit later. But it's interesting to see that, I guess the 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 desire to have more plain language seems to be coming from across jurisdictions. You know, you just mentioned um, the U.S., Canada, um, even Queen Victoria, which uh, I didn't expect you to go that far back. But <laughs> um, well, Australia. Yeah. Australia did a, their legal firms spent millions of dollars in yeah. the 90s to convert their documents. Mm-hmm. And some, you know, two of the larger firms. And uh, in Sweden, they've had a training program for uh, for legal writers for plain language for thir- more than 30 years. And those people, the graduates are pulled into the government to advise government and assist with uh, clear communications from government. So, you know, yeah, it's been very active. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was wondering, even for the benefit of the listeners, I know we've 
mentioned plain language a few times already, but um, maybe in your own words, what is plain language? Is it just colloquialism? Um, is it something different? Uh, like, what do you look for when you're, um, mm. you know, identifying plain language? Well, I'll, I'll give you some context. The uh, report from the Bankers and Lawyers Associations set out 10 tips for uh, legal drafting, and, and those are good. You could look mm-hmm. that. Google it. Yeah. Other groups, especially with social media, you have people constantly po- posting five tips or ten tips, and it's fine. But um, in when COVID hit, my contracts were canceled right at the beginning, so I had to find something to busy myself with. So I started reading neuroscience, which is biology and psychology and linguistics and all those things with neuro added, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> looking at what part of it would impact how we communicate in writing or with one another. So I've been pursuing that for three years. And so to me, to make information easily understandable, you have to use familiar words. And to find out what's familiar, you might have to go to a word list. There's a number of lists online, 5,000, 10,000 words. If you know that your target audience is going to be um, low in literacy and Mm -hmm percent of the population in Canada is low in literacy, oh, wow. uh, you might look to a 3,000 word list. But that 1,000 word list that was created for fun is not appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if familiar word and familiarity arises either from it being frequently in use daily, an everyday word, or that the particular reading audience is familiar with it in their line of work or their line of uh, study or their artists or whatever. And then the second most important thing is that your sentences follow the default structure of the language. So it differs in different languages, but in English, it's subject, verb for action, and an object, possibly. Mm -hmm. So we call it SVO, subject, verb, object. Keep that structure and put it at the front of the sentence. Mm -hmm. I call many legal sentences left-handed because they have a whole bunch all the conditions and limitations are at the front of the sentence and then they make a statement a positive statement of something and it used to be considered that that was the legal way and you had to mention all the conditions and limitations before you could say what the main thing was the main idea that's wrong it's out of date you need to say up front what your issue is put it in positive tones what your statement is and then you could add limitations, restrictions, conditions in which that applies, and so on. And and in doing sentences, we want them to be brief because our working memory is brief. We have to hold those words in our memory while we identify them and determine their meaning and the circumstances and analyze them and decide whether we're going to retain them or ignore them, let them go, and not even keep them in our memory. Uh, so working memory is short. So that could mean 25 or 30 words, but you've also then got to do all that higher order thinking. So we generally say 25 words or less on average for sentences, and that gives you room for the uh, mental work you have to do to be sure you have the right meaning. So uh, brief sentences, averaging 25 words or less, but also if you've got a lot, and a sentence is supposed to express one thought, okay, one idea. Mm -hmm. So if you feel that idea is too complicated to get out in 25 words, then you need a list structure, which is also brain-friendly. The brain likes to scan a list because it establishes a chronology or a hierarchy or levels of importance or whatever. So you can use uh, chunking of information into list items 
the brain likes chunking. It's easier mm-hmm. to process things a chunk at a time. And also, so that's it. The, uh, the main thing is the familiarity of the words and the construction of your sentence. There are a lot of other things I could go into, but those are the two key, two key things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, it sounds like a whole science when you, uh, <laughs> when it's you lay a it out. It's a discipline. It yeah, is, in fact, yeah. a discipline. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, I think when you put it like that, like it's just about communicating your ideas in a logical order. Um, yeah. Because I think even, like, I'm not, I'm only a second year law student, but even, you know, having seen some statements of claim or some, uh, or some legal documents, I see exactly what you're talking about, where there's all these conditions at the beginning of the sentence, and you don't know what they're talking about yet. Yeah, but they're right. saying, like, forthwith, if this happens and that happens, um, by the order of whomever, <laughs> Yeah. It's like, wait, what are we talking about? And, yeah. then, and, then, and, and then you have to go yeah. back and start over. And, and yeah. often there's so much between the subject and the verb. You have to, there's like 35 words in there. And you have to keep reading it, rereading it until you can connect the last word and the first word. Yeah. yeah. So that we have to resist. Yeah. Also, so, uh, rhetoric. We, we do draw on, uh, you know, rhetoric from the time of aristotle you know there's been many permutations of that philosophy of rhetoric and so mm-hmm. on but that the key things are who are you talking to who are your who's your reading audience um what's the subject what's the key message you have to deliver and focus on it and uh and what are the circumstances you know when will they be hearing this will they be in the courtroom when this is coming at them you know what's the circumstance in which the information is communicated yeah yeah so that's interesting so it seems also that what qualifies as plain language depends on who the audience is. Exactly. So it, 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 it will change. Um, yeah. Can you maybe speak, speak a little bit more on that? I don't know if there's anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reader, but it's which reader, when and where. Yeah. Okay. I, I recently heard a speaker putting it that way. And also to remember that you've, after you've been through uh, university and law school and wherever else you get training, the people who read your material were paid to listen to you or paid to read what you wrote. And the people you're going to encounter now are not paid and they're not going to be interested unless you show them right up front why they should be interested and you make it easy to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, when I was a student in law school, I mean, that was 35 years ago, there were 100 uh, page judgments. And I don't think there's a lot of those anymore, but there's, there's, a, there's definitely a few. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can, I can attest a, to that. Yeah. That's a failure to focus on the key subject. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All those constitutional cases, they definitely, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they definitely like to uh, belabor the point sometimes. I'll tell um, you, there used to be a, a prime opportunity that comes up every summer and uh, it's a federal, I think it's the Canadian Association for the Administration of Justice, yeah. produces a seminar every summer for judges. And there's usually one or two seats from each province. So when a, a judge here gets the chance, they're very thrilled. You know, they've been called on to go and learn how to write in clear language. And so I spoke to one of these judges when she came back. And I said, so how is that? You know, what, what's your experience about that? And she said, well, I, I really liked it and it was great. And then I had to sit in court and listen to lawyers go on for hours and hours and read their briefs. <laughs> she said, oh, I think I've lost it all. You know, like it, you just get overwhelmed by legalese. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going on from that. I'm wondering, apart from, you know, saving, saving paper and ink, um, why is the widespread use of plain language necessary? 
Okay, well, it does save government's money and, and companies' mm-hmm. money. Because if your information is not clear, you're going to have a lot of customer service calls. You're going to have many misunderstandings, which lead to complaints or lawsuits. Mm-hmm. And back in the 70s with the um, – it used to be called Citibank – City Bank of New York, um, they took up a, a, a huge project, to use plain language, to reduce the number of times they were in small claims court. They oh, wow. In court because people didn't understand what they'd obligated themselves to. Mm-hmm. So the solution was to make it very clear right, what it is. And today, um, this year's the Social uh, Social Appeals Tribunal for the Federal Government of Canada has uh, undertaken a plain language project and they've trained their uh, tribunalists to write in plain language and I worked with the registrar's department uh, to uh, make sure they're dealing with the public in plain language. That's an agency that deals with uh, employment, unemployment appeals, uh, any other social security issues, uh, any kind of benefit from government. Uh, The appeal goes to this one tribunal. So they're dealing with people with everyday problems and they are not represented by a lawyer, um, so they need to be guided through the process plus well informed of what's what's going on. So it's it's uh, very important. It saves t- time and money both for the consumer or the ordinary citizen and the government, and and businesses have known this longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's I think I said even before, but I think it's really heartening. Even when you talk and you mention all the different corporations and organizations that are um, pushing towards this. Like to see just this big, I don't know, I don't know if community is the right word, but a network um, uh, pushing towards plain language. But I was wondering on the flip side of that, um, I imagine, I may be wrong, but I imagine that there may be some parties who have an interest in not seeing um, the widespread use of plain language. And I'm wondering if, uh, if, yeah, maybe you could speak to, is there, is there like what are some of the reasons why parties or organizations or particularly agents in the legal field might want to see the continued use of like complicated and and all these condition statements that we see i think it's just because i think a lot of times law is often like fairly accused of being um, a self-propagating profession you know you have all these documents statutes that are written by lawyers and can only be understood by lawyers um or there's like the classic almost like a almost like a TV example of, you know, the lawyer sliding you the contract full of all these terms that you don't understand and you're just overwhelmed and you sign it, not realizing that you've actually entered this, you know, incredibly lopsided agreement. And so I was just wondering, like, are those practices still in place? Um, They are. are. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've encountered it yet, but there's the legal theory that if a contract is ambiguous, the the negativity is attributed. Yeah, contra preferentum, uh, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's that, and there is the fact that some people are it's scam artists. You know, they're not going to be clear. I got taken by a product uh, that was advertised online, and I went in and looked in all the material, and it's actually a well supported by legal um, scientific evidence product. So I yeah. saw, it. I bought it. But the thing was that in order to use the website, you had to agree to their terms. Now, it takes on average three days to read the terms. Uh, there's been a study. <laughs> oh, actually? Like if you – I've never done it myself, to <laughs> no. be honest. I didn't it, know it, it takes that long. Yeah, see, 
And there was a judge in Australia who said that too. I, I just have to, you know. So yeah, so I just signed. Yeah, I thought it was the regular terms of use of a website, but but yeah. the terms actually said if you buy anything off of us, it's a subscription, and we'll keep sending it to you and send you bills. That's a and it had come like three times, and I I tried to cancel. There was no way to cancel because they gone. They had no contact information. They, yeah, and I search like mad to find them anyway so yes there are scam artists that are going to use plain language to draw you in and when donald trump was elected there were people analyzing his writing and speaking style and saying that he talks in plain language mm -hmm. yes so now i always tell people play you can use plain language for good or evil that's <laughs> <laughs> That's an A plus example. No, but I think I think it's true. I know um, I've got to be careful because I really don't want to wade into politics. But um, even using the Trump example, it's interesting how yeah, even when he was running, you would watch a clip of one of his campaign campaign speeches, and even though you may not, you may disagree with everything he says, even down to like the factual basis. It was interesting when they would cut to another politician, and you realize how strange most politicians talk. Yeah, <laughs> you realize like, oh wait! After hearing him talk, and then hearing like some other uh, more mainstream politician, you realize this is not a natural pattern of speech that they're adopting right now. Um, you know, there's yeah. been a, c a considerable research and, and materials written about how to be persuasive with language, mm -hmm. and it happens to overlap very nearly with our plain language uh, practices. You know, it's be simple, be clear, be personal. You know. Um, do what you can to engage the person with the words and way you tell stories and all that. And so you can persuade people for good or evil, you know, mm. and you've seen it in your own life. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, something you mentioned earlier was that when you, uh, when you first got started, you encountered a lot more resistance um, than you do now. Um, and so I'm wondering, can you maybe tell me about that evolution and maybe what you think, what, what that had looked like for you personally, maybe what you think motivated that, that change? Well, um, back 30 some years ago, uh, mm -hmm. actually a couple of bar associations in the States made videos and, uh, one Lars group in the Southern States, uh, produced a, a song album talking about how the judges that resist and the people that resist clearer thinking. My personal experience was um, that I had a young lawyer told me people didn't want plain language. They didn't want to understand it. They wanted to be serviced by lawyers. Mm. They wanted the lawyer to worry for them. But over time, the movement uh, of consumers has expressed the concern of people that they should be able to make decisions for their own life and not simply trust a lawyer's uh, advice one way or the other. And the Bar Association has said that it's the client's decision, not the lawyer's, what to do, and that lawyers should explore alternatives to litigation. Okay, so you have to have a client who understands the risks and the benefits and the and the odds of winning and all that. So it falls mm -hmm. upon the lawyers to make that understandable. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems as though the use of plain language even maybe goes beyond um, access to justice, but almost like grants clients or or people who aren't legally trained like a measure of autonomy like that's not to it. say yeah yeah like that's not to it. say you may still need your lawyer but it's the relationship looks different and also you know mm -hmm. ignorance of the law is no excuse 
So <laughs> yeah, that's a classic. Yeah, <laughs> that puts a burden on on governments to explain law, and that's a lot of work I did way back was uh, the Department of Justice in Ottawa had a division for public information, and uh, would when there was a new law, they would explain it. So it's about there's a social democracy, social basis that there's democratic basis it, one of the organizations in the states say plain language is a civil right mm-hmm. you know and if you just think philosophically about democracy and about the courts and everything yeah plain language should be or th- th- these bodies should speak to the people in clear language mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so i'm i'm wondering um Obviously, you are you you run a consultancy agency, and 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 that's what your efforts have looked like maybe more recently. Um, but can you tell me maybe even with Plain Canada or other organizations you're aware of, like what does advocating for the use of plain language look like? Um, well, yeah, it's small steps, and it's small steps, but so, so it's standing up to a client and saying, this you, this is not clear, and the readers, I always use the thing, the reader's not going to understand. Your client won't know what you mean, you mm-hmm. know, so you become a reader advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is to uh, try to persuade clients that, that that's the process it takes, and I run into that. But in government as well, is to persuade superiors that that's what's needed. The federal government's communication policy goes back uh, at least 25 years and calls for either plain language or, as it's been amended, clear and understandable information. And I've gone out and done training uh, at the civil servant level, and they say, okay, great, you know, uh, but I, my manager won't accept this. So mm. the issue becomes how do you – you advocate by saying, but this is the government policy. You must do – we must do this and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I'm a rule breaker, so you know not everybody will do what I would do. Make <laughs> it happen. So Plain Canada uh, has adopted a, a petition that I, uh, yeah, I saw that, put yeah. online, and it uh, calls on the Auditor General's office to review, in the annual audit of each department, the uh, communication practices. Now that back in, um, in the '90s when Sheila. Fraser was Auditor General, and the government first adopted a plain language communication policy. She would release her report of an audit of a department containing information about whether they were implementing that policy, how much training had they done, how many uh, documents had they ca- uh, translated into plain language or created a new in plain language. And it was like a report card. They have that in the U.S now because they have a plain language law that says when the government communicates with citizens about benefits or obligations it needs to be in plain language but uh, they don't and they chose to have a senior member of each department implement and, and enforce that mm-hmm. but the, there's a volunteer organization of uh, people who involved in this field called the center for plain language in the u.s and every year they issue a report card for each department give them an mm-hmm. a b c or d plus mm-hmm. they do uh, annual good and bad awards but in Canada, uh, our Auditor General could take that up. We have, you know, it's that Seal Fraser was, I think, three three auditors ago. So uh, that petition is asking for that. But there's all got to be ways to pressure either the BC government or the federal government. And one of the things we do is uh, the plain language movement internationally has a International Plain Language Day. Mm-hmm. It's on October 13th because that fell one 
year and a day after the U.S. government brought in a plain language law. It was mm. a significant, had significant impact. So we chose that day, and we started having celebrations. And part of that would be a petition or a march on a government department or something to express the importance of plain language and, and advocate for it on that day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started that at, well, 19, um, 2011, I think. And already every there's many, many countries all over the world celebrating it. Yeah, yeah. On it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's also, it seems as though those efforts – are bottom up in some sense like you have groups like like playing canada doing training you know at one organization after another but then also top down um you know you talk about the this legislation that was passed in the states i'm wondering has there been any so it sounds as though there hasn't been any sort of plain language legislation passed in canada or bc in particular laws they might call for you know clear and understandable Mm -hmm. by the reasonable by a person making a reasonable effort is one of the phrases. It's all kinds of phrases that are used. Yeah. BC government has required in, in regulations, mm-hmm. um, but there's no law. Federally, the government has required it in, uh, for example, the fire fireworks uh, regulations were put into plain language, but there's no requirement that those regulations be in plain language. There's no law requiring the government to use plain language. It's they get by with a policy which in canada is usually enough <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also seems and also no 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 fine um and so it also seems as though there's no requirement on non-government actors then to to use plain language apart from no. you know obviously talk about common law but um beyond that well there become um requirements because of court decisions yeah i i do do a lot of volunteer writing and editing and being part of a focus group for the BC Cancer Federation. Mm-hmm. And um, what initiates most document reviews with them is what they call a safety event, where there was a problem that arose because the patient couldn't understand the instructions or directions for their treatment. So immediately they turn to uh, revise that document so that it's clear and understandable. And um, they're, they're, in a, they're on a campaign now to redo about 30 documents. But they've probably done that many in the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. So private agencies are affected by what goes on in the world. And they do have – it's a risk assessment. Should we put time and money into this and save ourselves time and money? Or, uh, uh, yeah, that mm-hmm. and the PR value of clearing. The, yeah. We had an insurance company which changed its name to Clarity and – advocated for clear language and had TV ads in Canada for a year on that. But then they got bought out by Sun Life, and that was the end of the focus on clarity. Well, it's kind of a sad story. (laughs) It happens, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Um, And so it seems as though, because something I'd been wondering about previously was like, okay, is there any sort of enforcement in place? But it seems as though the enforcement is is in the form of PR, or efficiency, or sales, um, or court decisions. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, as I mentioned, the center in the U.S. calls on people to demand plain language, mm-hmm. and, and keeps saying, you know, plain language is your civil right. You know, speak up, demand it, etc. Um, I should, I'd like to mention Plain Language Association International, yes. which uh, a, a colleague and I organized in 1993. So it's coming on its um, 21st birthday. But it's got 20,000 people on its uh, LinkedIn group. 
-hmm. it's international. It's, I think it's in 38 countries now. And so joining a group like that makes people feel like they're not alone in this battle and also allows for sharing information, having conferences, having webinars and learning the latest. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And I'm just wondering, so in your mind's eye, let's say, what 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 do you, what would you want um, a formalized requirement to use plain language? What would that look like? Let's say if it were coming from the government of Canada or the government of BC. Um, well, there it... have been drafts. There mm -hmm. have been there has been bills introduced already. Mm -hmm. I probably go and find one of those and just you know update it, because the the laws in the states on consumer matters used uh, computer algorithms. Mm -hmm. Or they'd say right to the third grade level or the fifth grade level. And that's out of date now because for the last 20, 30 years, there's been a lot of money going into neuroscience research of all the types I mentioned, biology, psychology, linguistics, mm -hmm. because the computer, uh, the artificial intelligence people and companies uh, want to figure out how people think, how the human thinks, so they can make their computers equal you know, or as intelligent. So they've invested a lot of money in the neurosciences. And in the last 30 years, we've learned a great deal uh, about what actually facilitates comprehension. Mm -hmm. What it used to be that people who worked in the field for a long time would develop a sense of what's good style and need right style guides. And the uh, people in the f teaching and reading specialization, they would develop... Um, suggestions for teaching clear writing. Uh, Edward Fry, who wrote one of the tests, was asked, you know, so instead of writing, trying to get a five-letter word and a 20-letter sentence, how can we write to be comprehensible? And he set out a, a bit of guidelines that he called writability guidelines, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to readability. So he had writability guidelines. And uh, those are pretty consistently supported by the neuroscience. But, uh, and, and I'm currently on a campaign internationally to mm -hmm. talk to people about the neuroscience shows so we can, we can say we have scientific proof that this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, I, I don't know if it's clear yet, I, I'm, I'm personally a very big supporter of the use of plain language. Um, I know even from, from my own experience, um, um, like working in a, in a law firm over the past summer, um, you know, sometimes you see people as come to the court as self reps and yeah. and just the complete like bewilderment they have just because of some of the terms that are being thrown out there. And as a second year law student, I didn't even I didn't understand some of them, but sometimes you'd be in a situation which I was found very disheartening where you'd think to yourself, if someone just explained what that term meant, and it, it wouldn't take much time, but if someone just explained what some of these terms meant, um, it would, it would, it would really help this person in a, in a major way. But because no one does that and kind of takes it for granted, you see these people kind of floundering, um, and also the fact that they're facing off against a lawyer on the other side of it. Um, and yes, yeah, so that, that that's obviously just something I've encountered. But um, I'm wondering. Well, let, let me yeah. speak to that. As a result of that, the the increasing appearance of self-represented litigants, mm -hmm. the courts are taking uh, an interest, you know, and they've, insofar as they can, they've published materials on their own websites about mm -hmm. how to, you know, make your way through. There's a national self-represented litigants project that 
publishes information. In British Columbia, we have the Amici Cure organization of uh, legal assistance that meets with people online in recent years to help them understand a form so that they can fill it out. You know, mm -hmm. they're not giving legal advice; they're explaining what the form wants to know. And and that's a big issue. And if you think about the criminal courts, I've done research with the. Um, chief of a police association across Canada. And in the criminal courts, you have to think about not just the defendant, but the victim, the mm -hmm. victim's family, the defendant's family, all the witnesses, people that might be affected. And if, if you want to get true and honest answers out of them, make sure they understand the question, mm -hmm. right? Or what is the process and, and is explained to them so they're not scared to death when they go in and get on the stand. It's uh, throughout every part it's very important and there was a judge in Ontario two years ago uh, he was dealing I believe it was an indigenous young man and he had to I think revoke parole or something mm -hmm. and so he wanted he said his um, the person the reader he was writing for was the kid he was you know 18 20 something he said he I want him to understand why I must revoke and send him back to prison Mm -hmm. And so he wrote it in very clear, understandable, empathetic language. And that's really what they should be, judges should be doing. And some of them are beginning to think that way as well. Mm -hmm. Just wondering, do you know if that, if that was Justice uh, Nakatsuru? Yeah. Sean? Yeah, I think um, I've read some of his other decisions. Um, I think R.V. Morris. But I think, yeah, he's, he has a reputation for, for that kind of He even writes it in first person, which is really interesting. Like the decision yeah. is directed directly at the at the accused um yeah i i was wondering um i think some people maybe um skeptics would say okay plain language is fine um in some arenas or in some areas but sometimes you know i'm you just need to come you just need to communicate a very complicated convoluted idea and it's just not going to make sense if you don't have that training if you're not don't have that expertise and so i was wondering maybe even in your own experience how do you approach um the process of communicating, you know, what are occasionally complicated um, ideas. There was a legal writer, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name, who mm -hmm. said, you can, there can be complex things that you can express clearly and simply. There can be complex things that you express with great complexity and uh, make it difficult to understand. And there can be simple things that you make complex yeah and that's to the detriment of the reader and that is what we really have to go after when simple things are made complex mm -hmm. and any complicated thing or well complications are usually unnecessary but complexity we can't avoid but you chunk it out mm -hmm. you say okay there's this factor and this factor and this factor and together they produce this result so you just have it's about organizing your thinking and you mentioned earlier about being logical. Well, the problem is that we all have a different logic. It, you lawyers think there's only one logic, <laughs> probably scientists. The reasonable person, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, reasonable person just means yeah. the average guy. It really yeah. literally does. I've tracked the history of it. Mm -hmm. um, so the average person is the person we're trying to communicate with, and we can make things sound clear and simple by chunking and, and explaining and not just assuming a whole bunch of language or being arrogant. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, what you already said is very interesting, just the idea of chunking uh, very complex ideas. And obviously you can't 
like you said, avoid complexity in some situations, but it's the difference between throwing a million ideas at someone all at once and yep. giving them time to digest them one at a time. Um, I can tell you a little secret, okay? Yeah. Just between all of us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, just yeah, me Canadian, and everyone listening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Canadian Bar Association of BC has a dial a law. And you, mm-hmm. I was the editor for three years. So you um, dial in and you hear five to seven minutes about uh, a particular topic. And it's five to seven minutes because we actually found from our data that people hung up after five or seven minutes, no matter how long you went on about it. But yeah. uh, that was when it was uh, voice, voice, delivered by voice on the telephone. Well, nowadays they're online. You can reach them. And what I learned when I was working within a law firm was that lawyers who weren't familiar with an area of law would listen to the dialogue law scripts before they met with their client for the first time. That sounds very you know, on brand. Because it yeah. was a clear and simple <laughs> uh-huh. delivery of the essence of the issues. <laughs> yeah. So and everybody, there's nobody who doesn't like plain language, especially nowadays. We're all, we're tired, we're stressed, we're busy, we're overwhelmed by uh, opportunities to get information and the information thrown at us, the push-pull of information, and uh, we don't, we like. And then people using the internet for the last 20 years, 30 years, have developed a new style of reading differently than when you sit down and read a book and scanning and skimming has been discovered by the neuroscientists to be the way people approach text now, whether mm-hmm. it's online or in on paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's I think very true. I think um, I even look back on some of the some of the essays I wrote, like in high school or, or undergrad, and I think there's a real temptation when you don't fully understand a topic to to try to cover it up with very like flowery language and um, and yeah, like you mentioned, like these very convoluted sentences. But I think once you you know get a little older and you read people who actually have a real grasp and you see how like you know perfect examples people who talk about justice mclaughlin from the supreme court and some of her decisions where there's just like five word sentences you know says the accused went to the store period it's like thank you <laughs> i really appreciate that um and like once you see more and more people doing that um it's almost empowering uh to, to do it yourself and just to you know shed all of that unnecessary um weight and baggage and just say what you think um, yes, yeah. and, and it's consi- felt by people that you're being authentic and, yeah. and truthful and trustworthy. Uh, you know, people can be misled by something that's clear and simple because they, us, the brain in us makes us think, oh, I understand this, so it must be true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But then that's the problem yeah. <laughs> for politicians and young lawyers is that they use baffle gab when they don't really know what to say. Mm-hmm. And so for some politicians, you know, they used to publish elaborate platforms for each election so you knew exactly what they were promising and you could hold them to it and now they don't they have baffle gab uh, declarations of intention because they don't have the details and maybe what they're saying they're going to do is impossible to do so they can't detail it so you can hide a lot by being vague and ambiguous and misleading Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i like to call it now i've got a new word i picked up from somebody by miscommunication Mess communication? M E S S, mess communication. I like that. I might use it. I don't know if it's a Scrabble word, but. Uh, <laughs> I like Baffle Gap. That's also the first time I've heard that one. I like, uh, <laughs> sounds like. Uh...
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Starry and Decisis. Tune in next Monday for a discussion about tenancy rights hosted by Cassidy and the Starry and Decisis volunteer team. Starry and Decisis is made possible by the Appeal Law Journal and CFUV 101.9 FM. Take care. Much love.